Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Mr. Briggs goes to church. Being open-minded has its limits. They say you can be so open-minded that when you lie down, your brains fall out. They must have been thinking about some of my clergy colleagues. Why else would they feel compelled to take seriously every idea that floats past their open minds like so many dust particles? It's as if at ordination they were ontologically changed indeed— losing any capacity to judge between good ideas and bad, becoming benign guardians of the mediocre, the novel for novelty's sake, and the just plain dumb. Bright ideas come across my desk every week from religious supply houses, in their color-coordinated packages, accompanied by music booklets and suggestions for supplementary crafts and children's activities, They promise to make my ministry easier and to win souls for Christ. Apparently, all I have to do is give them money. These overstuffed packages are responsible for the felling of entire forests, only to end up filling both a recycling container and a good-sized waste paper basket in my office. Fortunately, decision-making about these bright ideas is actually made easier by their sheer volume. I linger only over those that actually have my name typed or handwritten on the envelope, not those that have been electronically reproduced from a computer list, and the ones marked to the pastor, or worse, to the reverend, those don't even get a second glance. Opening packages from our own church house, bulging with good ideas for ministry, is also a particularly bad idea. 
I lost my head not long ago and found myself sifting through an eager assortment of liturgical resources for saints' days and other feasts of the church, including sermon notes and hymn suggestions. I thought that's what I was being paid to do. There was, for instance, a musical setting for a Mass for St. Cecilia's Day, the patron saint of musicians, titled Make a Joyful Noise. It featured a setting for organ, choir, and noisemakers, the idea being that the solemn tones of the organ would intermittently be brightened by the choir breaking into a chorus of dip-dip-doo-dip and by the congregation playing kazoos and party whistles. A children's liturgy for the conversion of St. Paul featured a glass communion beaker that, presto, turns water into wine, or at least into a drinkable wine-colored liquid. In God's good providence, things are not what they seem at first and can, in fact, become something even better, like the Apostle himself, I guess, was the point. I was amazed to think that people actually get paid to write this stuff and that some clergy are gullible enough to swallow it. One colleague gushed to me recently about the Welcome Back Sunday he did in his parish last September. First, he had the congregation gather in the church hall instead of in the church. The startled parishioners heard some readings, and then they were invited to play with a huge parachute, everyone holding on to an edge as it wafted up and down. Each time it rose, Various combinations of church members scrambled to exchange places beneath the billowing tent as their young rector called out, Everyone wearing blue socks, or if you had cornflakes for breakfast. This is worship? I am liberal enough in these matters and politically astute enough to have a functioning worship committee in my own parish. We meet monthly to read books and articles to discuss new developments in the field and to set a general course for the worship here. I have made sure there is an equal number of traditionalists and modernists so that nothing too wild is likely to happen on a Sunday morning. But at our last meeting, someone reported on the cathedral's recent Blessing of the Animals service. They brought the clipping from the diocesan newspaper. To illustrate the thrust of the story, there was a photograph of a dog, an old basset hound, looking uncertain, its ears drooping over the proud hands of the child who held it. A smiling priest, Holly Wright, an advocate for this sort of thing, was reaching out toward the pet, her hand in the sign of a blessing. Another child off to the side could be seen giggling. They passed the article around. People perked up. It makes the church seem so, I don't know, friendly, someone said. The others nodded. We're not as stodgy as people think, after all. And there has been a great deal of research lately into the therapeutic role of pets, someone else suggested. They give cats to seniors, don't they, for company? And bunnies to inmates to teach them how to care for something? And pet cemeteries are becoming big business, someone added. I could see where this was all leading, But before I could figure out how to cut them off at the pass, the room fell silent. Everyone was looking at me. What did I think? The truth is, I hate this stuff. All of it. The diocesan paper is filled each month with just such cheesy exhibitionism. Photos of grown adults standing around, grinning sheepishly. Some poor child held upside down by his ankles as the bishop 
beats the bounds of the parish, all for the sheer fun of it. Are we so bored with the basic faith that's been handed down to us that we are driven to such superfluousness? I once thought a Bible on a lectern, bread and wine on the table, a few people in the pews, these simple elements might actually be enough. But no. Where is Oliver Cromwell with his smashing hordes when you need him? Though, admittedly, there was something rather touching about this particular picture, with the old dog's sad eyes, its eyebrows raised toward the hand that was blessing it. What was it feeling, one had to wonder, in this its fleeting moment of fame? Was it in some doggy way enjoying the limelight? Was its little heart pounding with pride and excitement? Or was it simply tolerating the fuss until it could return to its well-worn rug by the kitchen door? How would you know? All right, all right, I finally conceded. The Feast of St. Francis of Assisi was coming up, and if we wanted, we could do something on a Sunday afternoon. But nothing profane. No horses or cows, no pythons or lizards, just your ordinary house pets, cats and dogs, that sort of thing. And there wouldn't be communion for humans or for animals. Someone suggested we have a reception to follow and perhaps some sort of pageant with prizes for the most lovable pet or the least likely pet. I quickly countered that animals like people were all equal before God and we should not be singling any out. If we were going to have a reception, tea and dog biscuits would be sufficient. It became apparent in the weeks that followed that the worship committee had its finger on the pulse of the community, and not merely the church community. Strangers began calling to find out if they had to be Anglican to come, meaning presumably the pet owners, not the pets. The service was proving to be popular before it even happened. When the day came, the place was abuzz with activity. I arrived to find the sides people spreading newspapers down the side aisles. Someone had thoughtfully placed boxes of kitty litter in the corners. A huge banner printed on computer paper had been hung around the narthex, quoting the apocryphal prayer of Azariah. Bless the Lord, you whales and all that swim in the waters. Bless the Lord, all birds of the air. Bless the Lord, all wild animals and cattle. Sing praises to him and highly exalt him forever. The pew bulletin had been made up by Grace, our church secretary, on her own time. It featured a picture of Noah's Ark and a verse from Genesis. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Grace herself was bringing her shih tzu, whom she had named Mitzi. The congregation began to arrive, gerbils on their treadmills, German shepherds held in check by choke chains, an ant colony working right up to the last minute between plates of glass, a caged rat named Rufus, a nervous armadillo on a leash, felines of every size and color, some with rhinestone flea-repellent collars. In they came, two by two, anxious to be there, anxious to be anywhere, tethered to their owners." The church provided a marvelous new world for them, filled as it was with species and breeds they had only ever dreamed of or perhaps seen on television commercials and then only in two dimensions. The dogs sniffed at the cats, the cats hissed and swatted at the dogs, the birds chirped and squawked in their cages, eyed by the cats, the armadillo, 
hid beneath a pew. As the noise level approached that of the Christmas Eve children's service, I went up to Barry, our organist, and whispered, We'd better get this show on the road. He stepped on the volume pedal, and we launched into the processional hymn, For the Beauty of the Earth, to which Barry had added a verse of his own. For the creatures thou hast made, for the pets that grace our homes, for each bark, each mew, each bray, comfort when we feel alone. Lord of all, to thee we raise this, our grateful hymn of praise. The congregation, comprising as many new faces as familiar ones, endured the readings in the little homily I tried to deliver above the din. Leashes were shortened, bristling fur coats were smoothed, sharp words were whispered. Then the sides people moved forward and the blessings began. The two German shepherds, Tyrone and Guthrie, must have thought my outstretched hand to be some sort of military command. They began barking wildly, rearing up on their hind legs, straining at their leashes, their slobber falling in foamy white clots on the carpet. I lowered my hand and completed the blessing, sotto voce, backing away. A tabby kitten named Minu was oblivious to the uproar. I squatted to receive her at the chancel steps. Crawling up into the lap of my alb, she settled down for a little nap as she received her blessing. The gerbils seemed particularly indifferent to theirs, nosing nervously around the little poops and the shredded paper lining the bottom of their cage. Roger the armadillo tried shrinking away from the public eye, straining against its leash. Fritz, a mean-looking, overstuffed gray Persian, became ornery when placed before me and tried to bite the hand that blessed it. Breaking free, he shook me off, preened a little, and then began roaming at will behind my back up in the sanctuary. The line moved forward up the center aisle. It was odd, but I found I was enjoying myself. There was no use being excessively formal, though I had memorized a standard blessing to use for all the pets. I learned each one's name from its owner and then extended a hand or took it into my arms as seemed prudent and had a moment with each. The owners themselves glowed with pride. Finally, at the end of the line, five-year-old Lucy Turcott came forward with her green budgie in a small domed cage like Tweety Bird's. Lucy's mom accompanied her, bending over watchfully as Lucy presented the cage to me. I knelt down and asked the budgie's name. Mr. Briggs, Lucy said. She explained how every day she put seed in his feeder and water in his little dish. Sometimes her parents let her take him out, and his tiny toes would wrap themselves around her fingers. I raised my hand to give the blessing. Mr. Briggs, I began, God's richest blessing upon you and your kind. But something was moving off to my left. I ignored it and carried on, whose life and witness gladdens the heart of from behind the potted palms, Fritz the Persian seized the moment and sprang forward, a gray streak leaping three feet through the air. People gasped. Fritz was focused on Mr. Briggs, not on the cage that held him, so his face ricocheted off the door with a loud clang, knocking the cage out of Lucy's hand and sending it rolling down the aisle. The startled cat darted off in the other direction, shaking his head violently as he went. Lucy's mom quickly moved forward and uprighted the cage. Mr. Briggs lay motionless on the bottom. Lucy looked on in horror. 
Oh no, oh no, her mom started saying. It's all right, Lucy, darling, it's all right. Lucy looked up at me, confused. I opened the cage door and reached in. Tentatively, I touched the little bird. It didn't move. If it wasn't dead, it was pretty close to it. I scooped it up. I had never held a bird before. Its feathers felt smooth against the palm of my hand. Lucy reached in and stroked the soft down of its breast with her finger. Mr. Briggs, she said. Her mother put her hand to her mouth, her eyes brimming with tears. But wait, was that a little movement I felt in his chest? I put my thumb over the spot. How does one take the pulse of a bird anyway? Did I just feel him stir? Mr. Briggs opened his eyes and blinked once and then again. And then, with a flutter, he was lifted and gone, out of the cage, up into the air, and circling the room high overhead. Lucy's mum, on her knees, hugged her daughter. He's alive, she cried. Mr. Briggs is alive, Lucy. The congregation, which had risen to its feet, broke into spontaneous applause. Children squealed. Dogs barked. It was a magnificent climax to the service though it took about an hour and a half to get Mr. Briggs down and safely stowed in his cage again, while Fritz the cat was caught by his owner and led away in shame. The local newspaper came out the next day with a picture of me on the front page, kneeling low beside Lucy, with Mr. Briggs in the palm of my hand. Budgie, raised from dead, the headline announced. Hyperbole, of course, but I had to smile. It had not been such a bad idea after all. At least, we'd had an open mind. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late.